13, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 13, as we continue our study through the New Testament, currently in 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look at verse 13 this morning, and Paul's asking the Corinthians to examine themselves, and that's the title this morning, Examine Yourselves. Paul here in chapter 13 is repeating what he said in our study last time we were together. He's been saying these same things about those that have come against him. They're belittling him. They're putting him down. They're saying that he's, you know, less than they are. He's a mediocre preacher and, you know, he's doing it for all the wrong reasons and he's not what he says he is. And so he's been defending himself against those that are speaking against him, not because of his own pride or reputation, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for those that he led to the Lord and, and, and founded the church in Corinth. He's going to Corinth now for a third time for the purpose of exercising his apostolic authority. Everything is to be confirmed when he gets there. Everything's going to be brought out in the open. Paul's going to use his position as an apostle, and he's going to prove his apostleship by the power of Christ working through his weakness. Paul shares his plan about his visit to Corinth. Some complain that he'd broken his promise to visit them again. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 13, and it begins, This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So before accusing somebody of doing something wrong or something against the law, the Old Testament law, and that's what Paul's quoting here, one witness isn't enough to prove that a person is guilty. There must be two or three witnesses to prove that the person really did something wrong. And Paul, like I said, is referring to Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 19.15 that says the facts of every case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And this is important because it protects the, the, the church member, you know, who somebody is making a, an accusation against and as well as you know, something he said you know, against a, a church member. And you just don't go by, somebody says, hey, you know what, this guy over here, this girl over here, you know, you go, well, you, you know, give me some times, give me some dates. Is there anybody else who has, you know, seen these things or knows these things before you take any action? So again, again, a, a biblical mandate, hey, don't just go on hearsay or, or, or one person, get two or at least two or three witnesses. When you're dealing with sin in the church, we have to have facts, not hearsay. Having witnesses would help guarantee the, the truth about a matter, some situation. And especially when the church members were at odds with each other. Paul has no doubt that the required number of witnesses will be available. So he starts a series of warnings here. The third visit will be the last. He's warned and warned and warned the people. He's stood his ground. But his reluctance to do anything up to now has been taken by his enemies as weakness. Oh, Paul's been warning us, you know, over and over again. He hasn't done anything. And so, again, they took Paul's warnings and his reluctance to do anything as weakness. He's all talk. 
Oh, he talks tough in his letters, but he doesn't do anything when he's around us. Well, Paul knew how to be weak in Christ and also how to be strong. How do, how, how do, how do people uh, measure ministry today? By powerful speaking skills by, uh, or, or by biblical content? That is what's being said. By Christian character or what the crowd says? Too many Christians follow the world's standards when they evaluate ministries, when they evaluate a church. Oh, it's spectacular. Oh, it's big. It's famous. Oh, it's really popular. You know, what they need to pay attention to is God's standards, how God measures a church, how he sees a church. So Paul's second visit was the painful one referred to at the beginning of this letter in chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul tells them next that he's going to come and he's going to, and he's going to be stern. Look at verses 2 through 3 now. He says, I have told you before and foretell as, a, as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Notice, he says, Let's look at verse 3. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. He says, I've already warned you guys. I've warned those who had been sinning when I was there my second time to visit. He says, now I warn them again and all others, just like I did before. He says, that next time I'm not going to spare unrepentant sinners. I'm not going to spare those who continue to sin. He says, you want proof that Jesus speaks through me? I will give you the proof that you want. Christ is not weak when he deals with you. He's powerful among you. So Paul was clearly warning them what to expect this time when he got there to Corinth. And Paul was hoping that they would put their own house in order before before he got there, and he had to do it for them. Verse 2, notice he says, they better watch out. He says, if I come again, I will not spare them. So the indirect threats, they're no longer indirect. Paul puts aside all hesitation and indecision. He says, the next time I come, I am going to use my apostolic power. And if they ignore me or underestimate underestimate me, he says, says, it will be to their own hurt. They're just going to hurt themselves. They had been murmuring about Paul like the Israelites murmured about Moses. But... Understand, they were really murmuring against God. Moses was only God's humble and obedient servant. Their murmuring came to a head at Karnash Bernia in Numbers chapter 4. And it resulted in a death sentence on everyone over 20 years old who were doomed to die in the wilderness. Again, their murmuring came to a head again in the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in Numbers 16. And that rebellion resulted in the spectacular death of the rebels and even that didn't frighten the others and they continued to murmur and that murmuring resulted in a plague that killed 14,700 people and rebellion came to a head again when the people became totally fed up with their wandering in the wilderness and numbers 21 5 says and the people spoke against God and against Moses and that didn't turn out very well for the people because it resulted in the people being bitten by fiery serpents. 
And it was a dangerous thing to speak against a prophet like Moses. But it was just as dangerous for the Christians in Corinth to murmur and complain against Paul. And like Moses, Paul showed amazing restraint. He didn't want to have to do anything or say anything to the last moment because it had to be done. He had his limits, though, and they would soon find out that they had crossed the line testing those limits of Paul and how far they could go by murmuring and complaining about Paul. They had denied Paul's apostleship, just like the Israelites denied Moses' authority. But again, in reality, Paul wasn't the one that they were rejecting. They were rejecting Jesus Christ. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should reign over them. Remember, this is when the people wanted a king. And, and, and God said, warn them, but they, re, they, they re, in, insisted on having a king. And so Samuel was bummed out. You know, he's just, he, he, he just, you know, but God told him, Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and what they say to you. They're not rejecting you, Samuel, so don't take it personal. They have rejected me. They don't want me to rule over them. They want a man. As for Jesus, he wasn't weak, but mighty. Verse 3 says, mighty in you. That's the way Paul put it. His power, Christ's power, was demonstrated among them as Paul had showed in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 12, all signs of an apostle. When he was among them on his first visit in signs and wonders and mighty deeds, they saw the power of Christ in Paul. Christ's power had been in them. Because they had been convicted, they were converted, and they had experienced the different ministries of the Holy Spirit in them and through them, which wasn't true about his critics and most of the Corinthian Christians. So there was a word of warning about the crisis that they were about to face. The signs of an apostle were going to be displayed among them again. Terrible judgments were waiting for some of them. But there was also a word of warning about Christ that they forgot. Look at verse 4. For, for though he was crucified in weakness, speaking of Christ, yet he lives by the power of God, for we, for we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. In other words, they should remember the authority of God's Son and the authority of God's servants. Now, you know, to many, the cross looked like a total failure. The cross of Jesus Christ looked like Jesus was defeated. And, and God's plan failed. Even the disciples thought that it was the end of everything when Jesus died upon the cross. Remember in Luke chapter 24 when the two, people, the, uh, the two are walking along the road to Emmaus? Jesus gets on the same road and he's walking with the two on the road to Emmaus? And they were talking, and Jesus said, hey, what are you guys talking about? And the two stopped, and, you know, they said, they replied to Jesus, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things that have happened there. And then Jesus said, what things? You know, he's, he's acting like he doesn't know what's going on. And they said, the things that happened to Jesus. Listen, it says, and then they said, and now you see that they, all hopes had died for them. They said, he was a prophet. Notice the words. He was a prophet 
who did powerful miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped. Notice, every day it was past tense. He was, he was, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. When Jesus died on the cross, they thought, man, everything that was promised, everything that God promised through his son has failed. It's not going to come to pass. He's gone. He's buried with, along with all of our dreams and hopes. But Calvary wasn't a failure. It was an accomplishment. It was a total success. And, and Calvary went exactly as God planned it. And God had planned it before time began, according to Revelation 13, 8. Calvary was all a part of the plan of Christ's journey from, from eternity to eternity. And he took it on to bring glory to God and salvation to us. Despite what it looked like, it was to the contrary. No man took Jesus' life. On the cross, after everything was accomplished, and, and the Lord said, it is finished, he sovereignly dismissed his own spirit out of his own free will. Nobody killed him. He gave his life. Calvary was Satan's biggest mistake. Why? Because Calvary was followed up, remember, by the resurrection. Then the resurrection was followed up by the ascension. The ascension was followed up by Christ's enthronement at the right hand of his Father. And after that, we see Pentecost. A complete success. Here's the problem with Satan. He never considered the church. The church age will close when Jesus Christ comes again and then the millennial kingdom and then a triumphant eternal state. Jesus was crucified in weakness, but it was that weakness that Paul has already described to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 25, the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the devil and the world underestimated Jesus and the world is still underestimating Jesus today. The church at Corinth better not underestimate Paul. Notice in verse 4, he says, We are weak in him. But he had finished reminding them that God has assured him his strength was made perfect in weakness. Back in chapter 12, verse 9. And then Paul talks about the power of God towards you. Referring to the Corinthians. When Paul came, he was totally prepared to use all of the power of God that was at his fingertips in order to reestablish his authority. Paul was going to show them. The insults and the insinuations were to stop. All of the stuff that was being said by Paul, it was to stop. Paul had to move now. The word of warning is followed by a word of advice. It was to serve two purposes. First, notice verse 5. First, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? So Paul tells the, the Corinthians, examine yourselves. It's time to give yourself a spiritual examination, Paul said. Why? To see if you're really Christians. Just like we need to get physical checkups sometimes, we need, to get, we need to have spiritual checkups. 
to see what kind of spiritual health we're in. We should look for growing awareness of Christ's presence and power in our lives. Are we aware of Christ's presence and power in our lives? Do we see his power and presence in our lives? Because that's the only way we'll know if we are true Christians or imposters. You see, if we're not moving forward in Christ, if we're not making steps, active steps to grow closer to God, we're drawing away from him further and further. As the, as the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, Search me, O God. And know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts or my anxieties. Point out anything in my life that offends you, God. Examine yourselves. It was time for them to test their profession of faith to find out once and for all, was it real or was it false? Now, they were demanding proof of Paul to prove his apostleship. then they should be testing themselves whether or not their own faith was true or false. And the test was really simple. The test is really simple. Did they have Jesus Christ dwelling in their hearts? Now, you might say, well, how do you know if Christ is living in you? James chapter 1, verses 21 through 27 says one way. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word of God that has he has planted in your heart, the word that he's planted in your heart. For it has the power to save your souls. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at, uh, glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law, that's God's word, that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. See, if we have the word of God, it has to be working in our life at the same time. Words and works go together. Do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart? There's another way of knowing if you have Christ living in you. Do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Do you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23. Do you love the brethren? There's another test of whether or not Christ is living in you. Do you love the brethren? Do you practice righteousness? Have you overcome the world so that you're not corrupted by the world, but living a life of godly separation? Everybody that's born of God overcomes the world. These are all ways of how, how you how to know if you're, you're living in Christ or Christ is living in you. Have you put on the new man, the new woman? Have you put on the whole armor of God? Have you put on the breastplate of righteousness? Have you put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another? Have you put on Christ? Have you put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice? This is how you know you're living in Christ. Do you, do, do you, do you, are all these things in your life, are they being exhibited in your life? And these are just a few of the tests that we can apply to our own lives to be sure we are children of God. 
Paul's cry of victory was this, Christ lives in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me. It's an indwelling Christ. An indwelling Christ is the proof of genuine regeneration that I am truly born again, that I am a Christian. Easy to say I'm a Christian. But do we have all those things that we just let, looked at that qualify me? The opposite of being regenerate, that is the opposite of being born again, is to be a reprobate. That means morally corrupt. Paul, no doubt, was thinking about the few legalists that were attacking him. Now, the word for reprobate is used of those who practice sodomy as a lifestyle, according to Romans 1.28. The word is used to describe apostates from the faith, those who have faith, moved away from the faith, false apostles. They should test whether or not they stood in the faith. Paul is saying here, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? He's saying, don't, you're Christians. You're Christians. A church that's separated by divisions and, and, and chasing after falsehood it's not fit for ministry to the world. Like worthless land. A church that is separated by divisions and chasing after falsehood is not fit for ministry uh, in the world like a piece of worthless land that produces only thorns and thistles. Hebrew says it's rejected and near to, be, near to being cursed, which, uh, again, whose end is to be burned. Verse 6, but, Paul says, I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul says, as you test yourselves, I hope you will recognize that we haven't failed the test of apostolic authority. They were to test whether or not they were in the faith. And they should test where, where, where Paul stood in the faith. Verse 7, Paul says, now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Paul says here, the important thing is the, the, the truth, uh, again, of the gospel. In verse 7, he's saying holiness was to be pursued, even if Paul wasn't approved, though we seem to be as reprobates. And here's an important truth. We are to be holy. We're to be holy whether others are holy or not. And Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness, because without which no one will see the Lord. Our salvation hinges upon holiness. And Paul made it clear that he didn't want the Corinthians to fail the test just to prove that Paul was right. Nor did he want them to live godly lives so that he could boast about them. He didn't mind being despised. He didn't mind being criticized for their sakes as long as they were obeying the Lord. See, it wasn't about Paul. It was about those that he led to the Lord. It was about their life as a Christian. It was about their witness for the Lord. Paul wasn't worried about his own reputation. Why? The Lord knew his heart. But he was concerned about their Christian character. 
Again, the important thing is the truth of the gospel and the word of God. Look at verse 8. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. In other words, we cannot do anything that is against the truth, but only what promotes the truth. Paul was, conf- was confirming that he and his associates, they wanted the truth to win out no matter what. And they were determined to further the truth and not hinder it. And in the end, God's will will win out. And remember that God's will will win out in the end. So why fight it? Proverbs 21, 30 says, There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. So Paul had given a warning, and now he makes a wish. Look at verse 9. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Paul tells us here what he wanted. The cause of Paul's joy is when we are weak, And you are strong. Lord, when we're weak, you are strong in us. Again, God is drawn to our weakness because then he can show himself in our weakness. If the believers are living godly lives, then Paul doesn't have to show his authority in taking disciplinary measures, which would make him look weak and unauthoritative. But he's not worried about that. He's more concerned about the Corinthians' holiness than he is about his own honor. He's saying here, we pray that you will be made complete, mature, perfecting in your relationship with the Lord. Paul's wish is for spiritual growth. Paul wishes the believers would make great progress in their Christian life. And we are. We're supposed to grow in our Christian life. We're supposed to make progress. Paul's wish here is for maturity for completeness, for uh, perfection in their spiritual life, in their growth. Verse 10. He says, Therefore, I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. He's saying, I'm writing this to you before I come, hoping that I won't need to deal severely with you when I do come. He says, because I, I want to use the authority the Lord has given me, but to strengthen you and not to tear you down. You see, Paul is glad he can write to them at this time. And he's writing to them to build them up and not to tear them down. And then Paul finishes his letter. As he pauses before he makes a few closing words, the threat of discipline is still a possibility for the church. Titus will soon be on on his way again. And and this letter, with its joyfulness and its later sternness, would be read to the Corinthian church. But they still have time to take care of business before it gets there. But the threat is getting closer and closer. This uh, This coming fatal showdown can still turn into a gentle, refreshing fellowship if they will take care of themselves and make things right before Paul gets there. It all depends upon them. When Paul gets there, will it be a a, a gentle, refreshing fellowship or will it be a rebuking session? Again, it all depends upon them. 
At least there would be a little doubt that this time, there would be little doubt this time that Paul meant business. And no doubt Titus and his companions would confirm that. But time was running out for the Corinthians to get things right. So Paul finishes his letter in verse 11. He says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. He says, be complete to the Corinthians. Be complete. You see, Paul wanted them to grow so that there wouldn't be any more contentions and confusions among them. They were still babes even after three letters and two visits. But Paul is hoping that this would shake them out of their contentment. And then he goes on to tell them in verse 11, be of good comfort. Come on, guys, be of good comfort. Cheer up. You know, there was so much squabbling and so much self-seeking and backbiting and chaos in the church. There couldn't have been any, you know, very many cheerful days or, or you know, it, it couldn't be very cheerful when they got together. Their fellowship couldn't be that joyful. They needed comforting as much as anything else. Someone with, a, with, with the true shepherding ministry, they needed to feed them, which was Paul, and to defend them from the wolves and to take care of them, take care of their hurts and to cheer them up. Then Paul says in verse 11, be of one mind, live in peace. In other words, give up this foolish party spirit. Paul says, God says, hey, and this, this idea, well, my way versus your way. This is the way we do it. Well, this is the way we do it. He says, stop. Give up that foolish party spirit. He said, let's have the same mind. Let us put on the mind of Christ. Basic Christian principles. And then he says, live in peace. This means the war is over. There was to be an end to the terrible squabbling that was turning each meeting into a battlefield. And then he says, may the love of God and peace shall be with you. And the love of God and peace shall be with you if you fix all of these things. We can always find any resource for any need in God. The Corinthians could find all the love that they needed and all the peace that's demanded in Him. They didn't have it in themselves. It was God who loved them with an everlasting love. It was God who called them into His perfect peace. Love and peace were both in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus lived his life among men, he embraced one and all in his love and offered all of them his peace. Love and peace are the fruits, are, uh, fruits of the Spirit. Love and peace are fruits of the Spirit. Now, while Paul was perfectly prepared to go to Corinth and to deal with the Corinthians and to exercise his apostleship and ready to declare war on the cult, Instead, he wanted to go to the church at Corinth and he, and, he, and he wanted the problems handled in the spirit of Christ. Verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now he greets them. 
Now in those days, men kissed men and women kissed women. The kissing was on the cheek and it was a form of greeting. Now in some countries, they still kiss by, uh, uh, greet by kissing on both cheeks. And when you go to South America, that's what they do. They kiss on both cheeks. And, and again, it's a form of, of, of greeting. Now, some countries still kiss, like I said, by, by, by uh, kissing on both cheeks. But the practice stopped in the church when accusations of indecency hurt the testimony of Christians. You know, some people were getting a little too fresh, a little too close, and, you know, it just, you know, it was not a, a safe thing to do anymore. So uh, it, it stopped because of those reasons. The greeting exhortation in principle says, be friendly with God's people and acknowledge them with kindness when we gather together. So now look at verse 13. All the saints greet you. There was a deep bond among the believers in those days of persecution. Faith in Jesus Christ brings a bond. I mean, we should have, it speaks about this bond. We should have that bond. You know, that was one of the things that blew the minds of the people in the early church. How they loved each other. How they took care of each other. How they did for each other. It should be the same today. We should have this bond that's closer than blood or a fleshly relationship. Look at verses 14 in closing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Paul thought this was a perfect way to end the letter. And notice, it's a good verse here to mark down because it, it gives more proof of the doctrine of the Trinity. Notice it, so it shows all of the offices of our Lord are given here. It says He is Lord, all right? He is Savior, he have, there's Jesus, he is, he is the Messiah in Christ, and the work of Christ brought the grace of God to man like no other work. So you have, you have uh, Lord Christ, you have Jesus Christ and God all again there uh, mentioned and the Spirit, and the love of God, the Father, mentioned there. We could never fully measure the wonderful love of God that He has for mankind. And His love benefited mankind like no other love. Again, just look at the cross. The cross is a picture of God's love who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It was love he loved us not because we were lovable, but because it's God's nature to love. He is love. You can't help but love. The greatness of his love is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Even when we didn't want him, Jesus still died for us. And then it says here in the communion of the Holy Spirit. The word communion means fellowship. And the meaning involves giving as well as receiving. If you want good fellowship with God, you must give as well as receive. Good fellowship with God will also involve holy living. How can, you know, if, we're, if we're not living holy lives, how, we, how can we have fellowship with a holy God? We can't. We can't. You can't have a good fellowship with a holy if you're not holy. And that's why we read, you know, in the scriptures that 
He is holy. You be holy. And here's the reason that many are not in good fellowship with God because they're not living holy lives. So Paul finishes his letter here with a hopeful amen. After saying all that he had to say in the closing of his letter, he finishes with, with amen, which means so be it. In other words, let it be. Let it happen. So be it. All the inspiration of God given to Paul has now stopped. Everything he had to say has been said. So now it was time for the church to act. It was time for the Corinthians to do. They've heard now. They've heard the word from Paul. And now it's time to work. There's no more he can say. Now it's time for their turn to act. Father, we thank you so much, as always, for your word, God, for this passage. Father, and may those words, examine yourselves, stick out. May they burn in our mind and burn in our heart, God. And as the psalmist said, Lord, search my heart. Lord, let us search our hearts. Let the light of the Holy Spirit shine upon our hearts and may he show us those areas of our life that are dark and dirty that we have to get rid of in order that we can have a holy fellowship with the holy God. And Father, again, an awareness that we are living in the light and that we are growing in Christ and we're moving forward in maturity and that we're doing the things that, that God says we're to do. That we can be witnesses to the world around us, God. So, Father, we thank you so much for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Father, we thank you for the offering that we'll receive today. We thank you for taking care of us in such awesome ways, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.